Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 158, recorded on March 23rd, 2022. The Cloud Pod discloses all of its Octa breaches. Good evening, Jonathan and Ryan. How's your week going? Better. Now it's the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kitten. Yeah. Much better. Yeah. It started out with a bang, uh, which is our first story of the night. So let's, let's get into the fury that is Okta this week. Uh, so I, I don't know about you guys, but I was sitting around at my house on Monday night uh, watching some TV show and uh, my phone started vibrating aggressively as all of cloud Twitter started saying Okta has been breached. Uh, allegedly by Lapsus, which is a ransomware, although really a chaos group. Um, and so it seemed pretty bad. Nine screenshots uh, about, uh, you know, it looks like Okta's control panel. They breached into Okta's Okta for Okta. Uh, and, you know, we didn't really have a lot of details. And, of course, you know, all of our calls to Okta and to support as we ran our incident response process uh, went unanswered. Uh, so we... Went through our process, did all those things. Then the next morning, Okta had an official statement where they basically said, we weren't breached. The screenshots were from an attempted attack from January. And I had to say, if it was attempted, you shouldn't have those screenshots. Uh, (laughs) But clearly you knew about this issue uh, because how did you know about this in January happened and why did you not potentially disclose your your breach? Uh, And then, you know, as everyone on Twitter continued to be very angry at them, uh, that evening, about 5.30 p.m. Pacific time, they said that 2% of all of the Okta customers may have been impacted, uh, which was about 336 customers. Uh, and they had apparently had access for a full five days in January by using uh, support engineer's uh, laptop, uh, you know, basically RDPing into his laptop and, and shoulder surfing. Uh, so then on Wednesday, they said they'll hold two webinars uh, where they basically read the entire blog post uh, verbatim in 11 minutes and then hung up the call, uh, which was, was terrible. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, since, you know, that was, I wrote the show notes up, uh, you know, they basically emailed you if you were a customer and you weren't impacted and they told you you weren't impacted. Uh, and then they had a follow-up where they talked about their super user account and what it could do, um, as well as some of the things. But, you know, there's some really, you know, shady things here. You know, they blamed their third-party processor uh, that they're using for support outsourcing versus taking responsibility as Okta, which I think is just dirty. I mean, you, you pick them, you put them under the controls. You know, just because they're declared on your GDPR doesn't mean you're you're no longer liable for them. Uh, and you know, overall, some of their breach disclosure stuff just seems a little bit fishy. Yeah, that's why we have third parties, isn't it, to to assign blame <laughs> at a distance? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one it's it's the the age old thing, right? Where the breach is bad enough, but then the handling of the communications of it is really what you know, seals the deal and where you really do all the damage, right? Because it's mm-hmm. it's one thing if someone attacks you and gets in through, you know, something unintended, which is, you know, like that sucks, but that's not going to shake my confidence in using a company. But, you know, someone who's hiding it, someone who's clearly dancing around it and, and you know, like eh, that, that makes me think that they're not well organized, right? Because that's how that happens. Yeah. It just... Yeah, you know, you'd be better off coming out, you know, on Monday night, you know, you know their marketing people got alerted. You know, they actually did issue a statement to Reuters, I think, that night that they had been notified of a breach and were investigating. Um, you know, you you 
update your stats page and say, hey, we've been notified of this thing. We're looking into it. We will update yeah. you. Instead, you were quiet until right before the you know, opening stock bell rang <laughs> and you had to get a statement out because you didn't want to impact your stock price. Um, and then even, you know, the fact they're saying that we were not breached, um, you know, which is purely because they have contractual language, most likely, that says if I if they're breached, that companies can, you know, exit their contracts immediately if they wish to do so uh, mm-hmm. based on the breach situation. So they're being very cagey about it. But I'm like, but OK, you you have an engineer who has access to Octa systems. They are, you know, social engineered or spearfished into this. They get access to the box. That is a breach of your vendor that you picked <laughs> who has access to your systems and potentially 336 of your customers, you know, potential data. It's just not an ideal scenario. And, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, I look back at where I have my solar winds and initially, you know, the feeling is solar winds is the victim. And I think we said the same way about Okta, like you're the victim here. But then, you know, if you're a bad witness <laughs> and you're not giving as good testimony about what actually happened and you're not being truthful about the details, it just makes you look worse. And it, I think that's what's happened with Okta this week is they just look terrible. Yeah. No, it's not a good look for sure. I think there's a, f- there's a few different problems with this whole this whole situation. I mean, while SSO is very, very convenient, it's, it's a terrible practice to use the same credentials for many different services. In fact, banks tell you don't use the same username and password everywhere. If you get breached in one location, now the attackers have got the credentials to get into all the common services that they know that you may use with those same credentials. So, you know, even even LastPass, all the password managers will advise, hey, you use the same credentials here, you should change one of these so that if they're exposed, um, you know, you're not not at risk. But SSO is, kind of flies in the face of that, really. Once once one account is com- compromised, now you've got access to everything that um, your, your organization gives you access to. I think the second thing is um, Okta is a great tool for managing um, enrolling and unenrolling of users onto systems, but I don't think they should own the source of truth for the user database. I, I don't think um, an Okta employee at any level should have the ability to reset my credentials. I want to own that myself on-prem or someplace else, somewhere that Okta don't have access to. Um, the worst case would be that they could modify configuration. They could allow access to a service from a place where we didn't want it to. Uh, they could perhaps allow users to have access to things that we didn't really want them to. But allowing them to actually reset my my personal credentials just seems completely um, unbelievable. So I, I, I would not choose to use Octree in that way. Yeah, the universal directory versus tying it to your AD uh, yeah, that is an interesting choice that I'm not, it does put a lot of eggs into one basket. Um, you know, so it, it's definitely a question mark. I, I think people will think twice about some of these decisions and how they do that. You know, the question you had about the identity and then using the identity to federate to others, you know, it's not really the same thing as sharing the same password across multiple systems per se, but the identity becomes that much more critical to secure, right? So now you have to, you know, ideally you have a password you're, you should have definitely have a, sac, a second factor, and I would argue you probably should have a third factor, which is you know a company asset <laughs> with a certificate that's you know owned by the asset, and then your your identity uh, and your two factor. And I think if you had those, then you kind of you deal risk some of the identity problem. But you're right if the, if it's just a hack that has gets you the identity, then you are getting access to a lot of systems. So there's pluses and minuses. Um, I don't know if it's exactly quite as bad as sharing the same password across all these systems, but I see your point about it. I just, I'm not entirely sure. I also don't know that I want to run 
my own Okta. Like I ran ADFS before. It's not fun. I don't think I was very good at securing it. I definitely think Okta probably has more experience securing my single sign-on than I do. Uh, but again, to Brian's point earlier, it's all about how you responded, and the response mm-hmm. was terrible. Yeah. And, you know, it's in the access of the support personnel to that, right? Like that if the, there's no segregation there, like how many times we discussed with Amazon, like their breaches and stuff, where there's all kinds of mitigations and limitations, even if they are breached at that rate, but or customer data gets exposed. But it gets clarified and it gets worked on. So, yeah, it's maybe give a lot of thought to to the support process and and the, the things which support engineers then get access to. In in a way, you you kind of want to tie access to a customer system into um, into the the ticketing system, perhaps. So, if you have a ticket open for a customer for a particular account, then within you know within a certain time frame, then you can have access super user access to that customer, and it's audited. But a support engineer perhaps shouldn't be able to just randomly pick out 300 customers and start pulling their data and, and um, making changes to their configs. So AWS is apparently going to be spending 2.37 billion US dollars uh, to build and operate more data centers in the UK, which I assume is uh, to support the natural growth of the London region. AWS did share some of their details that they would be taking advantage of the Moray West Wind Farm off the coast of Scotland, and the Wind Farm supports over a thousand jobs with the construction over five hundred uh, pounds, uh, five hundred thousand pounds to the Scotland economy every year, uh, which I'm sure makes uh, Donald Trump's golf course very unhappy. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if the investment there is in response to them be, there being a cheaper power available, and maybe it's not so cost prohibitive to build a data center there. Because it's, I mean, it's it's definitely a huge wind farm generating a lot of power. Yeah, definitely a lot of power. I mean, I mean, they have the London region. I assume that just like U.S. East One is probably the biggest region in the U.S. I would assume London is the biggest region in the U, you know, European Union because it was the first. Um, and so I just imagine they just need a ton of capacity, you know, just like your East does where, you know, it's, it's like 20 or 30 data centers now <laughs> all combining together mm-hmm. to become availability zones. So I just imagine they need to need a ton of space there. And so the power they started building a couple of years ago in anticipation of eventual need for this data centers, that would be my guess. There's only one region though in the UK and with, with their departure from the EU and, um, data residency requirements, it, it may just make sense to build another region. Yeah, that could be too. I mean, they this doesn't say where exactly those data centers were being built, but yeah, it's possible they're you know built on their end of of uh, the island, and uh, now they can call it a uh, you know a DR site. Yeah, I'd like to see a, a second region. It would make make a lot of sense. Yeah, especially since the EU is not with London anymore. The AWS Building Conductor is a new capability allowing you to easily provide customizable pricing and cost visibility to your end customers or business units. The Building Conductor is intended for customers who have a specific showback or chargeback need, and using the conductor, customers can logically group accounts by financial ownership, control the price of those account those accounts see in the Building Console, and a cost and usage report, as well as distributed credits, fees, and shared service costs. Uh, you can also use it to share RI and SPs across accounts in a decentralized manner, having all commitment-based discounts shared with only a specific set of accounts or all your accounts, uh, which, thank goodness, because I know that's been a pain. You know, you want to buy RIs and SPs at the master account level, but you know, then how it got applied to accounts was always kind of round robin. But now you can buy them at the master level and apply them to a specific set of accounts. That's, that's actually really nice. Yeah, it makes so much sense, especially if you're tracking the cost of a particular service as you're making changes month, month to month 
the RIs get applied to, to this account or a different accounts and the price goes up and down, it's very hard to actually see the progress you're making toward any kind of optimization. And so be, by being able to assign these these cost savings to specific accounts, it means you can actually you know, better understand um, your costs. It's awesome. Number Excel spreadsheets. Yay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this is Excel spreadsheets and like giant, like, you know, big data query of the CSV file. That's, you know, I don't even know how many rows, you know, it's ridiculous. So this is nice to see some, finally some improvements here for billing for people who have to, you know, actually pay for these things. Always have to pay for it, Ryan. Can't get it for free. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. Not only that, but but now you, you don't just see the list price in the account in the cost in the cost explorer. You can see um, it, cost based on ADP or any other kind of um, custom pricing agreements you have. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a, you're an IT shop trying to be a profit center, you can show them fake prices too. <laughs> <laughs> We're a profit center now in IT. What, what do you mean? <laughs> Doesn't match the price list. That's our prices. What's IT service you're buying from us? <laughs> Uh, AWS Lambda console now supports the option to share test events between developers, uh, which I did not really understand until I read this. Uh, but apparently test events provide developers the ability to define sample events in the Lambda console and then invoke a Lambda function using that event to test their code. Prior to this, the test events were only available to the developer who created them. And so if you're a new developer coming into an existing Lambda project, you'd have to spend time creating test events first. Uh, this makes it now easier for developers to collaborate and streamline the testing workflows by leveraging the same set of test events and replaying them as necessary to test their Lambda code. Uh, so I, one of those things, I don't do enough Lambda development to know this was a thing, because uh, when I develop it, it's just for myself. Uh, but if I was in a team, I can see why this is really important. It, I think there's more to it than just what the press release kind of gets into. I mean, being able to share them is great, but but they talk about IM and sharing them based on a set of permissions, which which really means that we can now create test events as as objects in their own right, which means we can deploy them as objects in their own right within Resurgence code, and we can start running automated tests against uh, lambdas as part of blue green deployments or whatever we whatever we want to do as part of the pipeline, and and uh, taking that away from sort of custom Jenkins nonsense. And, and building it into the service is is awesome. Yeah, I mean, if that's the case, um, you know, like because you used to have to have modify function in order to create a test event in the console, right? And so for for production accounts where you want to have limited access, you know, but you can't run a test of or execute a, a function, like that's sort of ridiculous. So that, that's nice. I like this. Yep. Moving to Mountain View and our friends at Google Cloud. Uh, if you've been looking for that Amazon Connect competitor, Google's got your back this week with the Contact Center AI for Google Cloud. Uh, Google is expanding its Contact Center AI, produced with the Google Cloud Contact Center AI platform, and this provides you an out-of-the-box end-to-end solution for the Contact Center. Bringing together advantages of AI, cloud scalability, multi-experience capabilities, and a tight integration with customer relationship management platforms to unify sales, marketing, and support around data across the customer journey. Uh, there are several features to this. It allows you to orchestrate the customer journey by creating a modern experience that can be embedded in their chosen channel with mobile web software development kits uh, compatible with iOS and Android. Uh, leveraging your CRM as a single source of insight into customer experience to unify content, increase personalization, and automate processing with CRM data unification, and manage multiple channels without pivoting across voice, SMS, and chat support, as well as predict your customer needs and route calls appropriately with an AI-driven routing capability based on both historical CRM data and real-time interactions. 
a new automated scheduling and schedule adherence monitoring and manage employee scheduling preferences with the workforce optimization integration and provides customers with a self-service via web or mobile interface using visual interface or interactive voice response or IVR. So there you go. Uh, if you want a call center in a box from a cloud provider, Google and Amazon are your place to go. Agent, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, wouldn't these things have like AI in the title? Because I'm like, is it abiding by like, you know, the law of robotics? Is it, you know, can it solve the trolley problem? Like, because, you know, most chatbots can't really even answer the most basic questions. So it's like intelligence and, and that's like, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure that works out. Yeah, it, it's, it's funny how you think about what Amazon talks about and that the reason they built a lot of their services because they had a need for them themselves and they realized that a lot of people would have a need for them themselves. I think Google built this because they, they have, uh, you know, they bought Fitbit, which makes a bunch of janky uh, sports watches and things which have horrendous problems, waterproof watches that break every time you take them in the pool, uh, Pixar Buds, where, where the left bud breaks after six months of use. I mean, so many problems and Google is notoriously bad for customer support. Such a large organization, so many, so many hardware devices, and it's very difficult to to be a satisfied uh, customer of Google when you have to deal with their support channels. So anything, anything they can do for anybody to to make the customer experience less frustrating is is good. And you know, let's let's hope that this doesn't just turn into uh, another agent please situation where all you want to do is break out of the system and and just speak to a real person who can apply some logic. Uh, if you are a fan of the Golang, Go has gone general available with a 1.18 release. Some of the big changes in this are the addition of generics, which they see as one of the biggest challenges or changes to Go since it was created. Uh, developers have apparently been telling Google that Go have been missing this critical feature for quite a while, and generics will allow you to take advantage of improved productivity, performance, and maintenance benefits. Uh, during the beta, they said there was a lar- already a large increase in libraries and project gophers using the new generics and expected this to grow over time. Another big change is they added native support for fuzzing. Uh, fuzzing is a type of vulnerability testing that throws arbitrary data at a piece of software to expose unknown errors and is merging as a common testing scheme in many enterprises. Uh, all other languages have this capability as well, but you have to do it through a plugin. Uh, and then, of course, Google leverages Go and all of their open source software and is their key connective tissue for the online world and the Google Cloud. No love for the Gophers from Jonathan or Ryan. Not really. No, I think. I mean, the generics thing. I think it solves it solves a, a, a pain point for developers, where you know you used to have to, to write separate functions based on the the types of parameters being passed, even if they did exactly the same thing, because it's very strongly typed. So generics allow you to write a function that handles many different types at the same time. So it sort of simplifies things, but. No, I'm not not a great fan of Go. I wanted to to get into it, but I think it has been superseded already by other things by now. What what do you think superseded Go at this point? I don't know of any new languages that have come out since Go that I've heard a lot of noise about. I, I think Rust is going to eat Go's lunch. Uh, I mean, isn't Rust uh, kind of your path from a more scalable version of Java in many ways? Mm, I mean, it's it's fast. It's it's strongly typed. It's memory safe. It's, you know, I, I see in the next few years more and more parts of the Linux kernel being written in Rust. I wouldn't be surprised if eventually the majority of the Linux kernel gets rewritten in Rust because it's, yeah, just, it's natively, um, natively safe in many ways, which have traditionally been um, risks for um, C applications. 
I don't know. I've never tried Rust, but uh, I've only heard people write really long blog posts on Hacker News about how complicated and how stupid it is in many ways. <laughs> but it's really great for memory management, and it has all those other benefits too. But yep. uh, yeah, I, I, it, it seemed like it was uh, really good for the certain use cases it's good for, but maybe not as easy as Golang so I, or Python, really, which I think is where most people go to coding-wise these days. Yeah, I think I think everything is built for a specific purpose, and then people try and abuse it for the wrong things. And yeah, right tool for the right job. Always. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I've, I kind of feel like Go trying to solve a lot of the complexity of like writing and like C programs, you know, has really paid off. It took a long time for there to be like library support and enough knowledge out there where you could research things. I feel like it'd be starting all over with Rust, which doesn't have, you know, the same level of support just by the mere fact it's newer. And I'm not sure, you know, like, yeah, I'm not sure what the, uh, what ruts, rusts, like, what is it? It's, it's intent, I guess. Like, I know why Go was developed. I don't know what Rust's problem was trying to solve. Well, uh, I don't have that detail either, but I did just go do a Google search for Golang versus Rust and which programming language did you choose? And 2022 popped up as the first result. So, <laughs> Uh, this, is a, this is written by, apparently, Corden Brewster, a content writer at Trio. I don't know. Again, this is not vetted by me in any way other than I just Googled for it, uh, which means, this, of course, it's true. Uh, of course. So, you know, they break it down here. So by a Rust, a Rust versus Golang side-by-side comparison, uh, it has a green thumbs up for performance for Rust, but only a yellow thumbs up for Go. So I think that tells me that Rust is more performant than Go. Uh, apparently, Rust also has more features because it also has the green thumbs up. But in ease of development, Go has the green thumbs up, and and Rust only has the yellow one. Maintenance uh, is go for, going for Rust. Uh, popularity is going for GoLang, and community apparently the Rust community is better than the GoLang community per this mm-hmm. quick chart and comparison. Uh, you know, so it, you know it breaks down into why this is the case, and so they say Rust outperforms Go. Uh, Rust is more feature heavy than Go, so Rust wins there. Uh, they say Go is easier to learn than use in Rust, uh, and Go will be easier to maintain than Rust, and then the community uh, is just a little bit better in the Rust side. So there you go. Uh, mm-hmm. According to uh, Stack Overflow in their survey, they were the less than 10% of developers used either Rust or Go, so I feel like we're just people screaming into the internet about which one's better at this point. It's new hotness, yeah. It's still all Java and Python forever. Yeah, I just say that right now in that survey, Go was more popular than Rust, uh, but the survey was from 2021, so it's it's hard to say. But people feel in 2022, they're about the same age, and they've been. I mean, they're they're both about 10 years old, I think, 10 or 11 years old. Oh, has Rust been around that yeah, long? Yeah, it's been around for a long time. And, and Rust uh, Rust started in 2006. 2006, okay, longer than that then. Um, I mean, they they both aim to solve almost the same problems, and they're different different implementations and different visions. I think if if you're a cloud provider and you want to build incredibly fast, highly optimized code to run your infrastructure, you know where every cycle counts, then you're going to go with Rust. Yeah. So Go was first announced in November 2009. So Go is three years younger than Rust. Hmm. This article is full of facts. I, yeah, yeah. Who knew that's the surprising first, to me? I hadn't heard of Rust. The it's first a, search. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, so I knew Rust was really popular with the Ruby guys because you know Ruby is terrible for memory and a bunch of other things. And there was a there was this diversion into some other programming language which was super popular for um, telephone systems at one point. And then they got per, I know a bunch of Chef Code got moved into that. 
I'm forgetting the name of that coding language, but that was also awful. Erling? Erling, yes, Erling, yeah. thank you. And then after they realized Erling was a terrible choice, a lot of those people have moved to Rust. So that's my experience with it. Hmm. I did not know that. I thought it was much newer. I, I maybe I'll, I'll you know I'll I'll do some more research then because I'm learning all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean you can write a hello world in both of them and tell us which one you like better. <laughs> There's a whole repo of them. I'm sure you can find the code examples. Yeah, I'm pretty. I probably still have my hello world for GoLang that you know mm-hmm. I've probably had to do that like six or seven times as I learn it and forget it. And yeah. forget it. Uh, Google Cloud Certificate Service can now issue you certificates for workloads reflecting their federated identities, even if the workload is hosted on-premise or in other clouds. At the core, this is a zero-trust approach to security, and it is ideal that trust needs to be established via multiple mechanisms and continuously verified. By leveraging the new capability from Google, you can leverage non-Google services to honor and validate your certificates, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, again, enabling that zero-trust reality with their CA, you know, their private CA service, is a really interesting approach to this problem. Yeah, I mean, I see this sort of connectivity model as the future rather than trying to pipe everyone through like a central choke point. And so, you know, and Google and with their, you know, Beyond Corp is really leading the way with a lot of that uh, zero trust. And I see this as an extension of that. It's great. Agreed. Hey, everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered uh moving up to redmond with azure uh they have a new epic processor instances the hp v3 vm which i'll never remember again after this call uh, <laughs> now supports the epic third gen processors with amd 3d vcache technology and if you're already using the HB V3 instances and you deploy new ones, you will get the advantage of the Epic third-gen processor already with no other work than relaunching a new instance. So, yay, new instances with Epic processors. I just, you know, I, I keep thinking there's a money-making opportunity for, like, somewhere between, like, a Magic 8-Ball and a decoder ring for all the, you know, all the cloud providers so I can, you know, get a, figure out what kind of VM and instance types and stuff I need. Yeah, I mean, you, you need to get a, a you know a PhD and trying to figure out these acronyms at this point. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if we, I know that no one wants to standardize our APIs, but maybe could we standardize our our instance names across clouds so we all know <laughs> what we're talking about when we say a C five yeah. or and what was this again? It was a HBV three. Like, can we all make yeah. make that make sense to us so we don't yeah. have to pull out the calculator every time and figure it out? So silly. Uh, well, Azure API Management now supports a private link. Uh, Azure API Management is a Azure API gateway solution to let you publish, secure, transform, and maintain and monitor your API. With just a few clicks now in the Azure portal, you can create an API facade that acts as a front door through which external and internal applications can access data or business logic implemented by your custom-built backend services running on Azure. And if you want to get really fancy, you can put the front door service on it so you can shut your front door to your API gateway. Nice. <laughs> 
And then if you want another uh, super confusing Azure instance type, the NVADS is the new uh, NVIDIA-based A10 V5 series processors now in preview on the Azure cloud. Uh, the first and only public cloud provider to offer unprecedented GPU resource flexibility with GPU partitioning. And they are happy to now bring the same technology on the NVIDIA A10 Tensor Core GPU. So if you want Tensor Core to burn a lot of money, Azure's got your back this week too. I assume GPU partitioning is sharing it with somebody else. So, you know, that's an interesting selling point. <laughs> well, I mean, you can, yeah. you can either sell, share it with somebody else, a good friend of yours, or you can take the whole box and then have multiple VMs or instances sharing the same GPUs if you don't need you know, constant GPU performance, but you need it sometimes, I guess, with your use case. Yeah, like I said, I guess that's pretty handy for containerized apps. Yeah. I'm surprised that anyone is actually um, deploying any new graphics card-based instances right now. With the, yeah, with, that they with, can, with, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's what's well, in preview, right? Because because I've only got five of them. <laughs> yeah, they only have five. I mean, I, I sort of feel like the reason why you, no one else can get a GPU is because the cloud providers just bought, you know, millions of them before COVID and they're just waiting for delivery yeah. still. <laughs> so, yeah. NVIDIA's like, we'll just keep announcing new stuff, but we got to still deliver that stuff to Amazon and to Azure first. Uh, and then I do have a Oracle story this week, which is always a good time. Uh, Oracle is apparently rolling out new compute, networking, and storage services with enhanced flexibility to cost controls. Uh, this new service automatically optimizes resources to match application requirements and provides a simpler pricing structure. Leo Leung, VP of Product Management at Oracle Cloud, says, There's a myth that to take advantage of cloud elasticity, you have to rewrite around microservices. Most customers are going to rewrite 80% of their applications. There's also a myth that you need to replatform. We think that's not necessary in many cases. And Oracle's approach apparently is to grow the infrastructure customers choose at the beginning of deployment rather than to force them to migrate, uh, as he said. Uh, which I kind of take it basically is that they don't believe in scale out. They only believe in scale up at Oracle. Uh, Oracle Compute Virtual Machines now have flexible memory, subcore burstable CPU, and a preemptible instance capability. And Lung says their strategy is to only charge you for exactly what you need, meaning if you only need 80 cores, you don't have to buy all 128. You only have to pay for the ones you actually want. They also have new AMD instances, also based on Epic processors, because everyone's getting Epic these days. And they're also allowing you to self-tune the network with simple commands to launch your app, firewall, load balancer, and networking peering together, as well as enable partners to enable CDN without a bunch of extra work like Cloudflare and others. Uh, Oracle Network is also giving you visualization to allow you to see how your traffic is being blocked by your firewall visually, because all network people like visual views. And OCI Block Volume Service now offers you flexible block volumes with performance-based auto-tuning to enable customers to change performance characteristics of block storage volumes automatically in response to fluctuating demand. Or when Oracle is going to miss their earnings target, you just rack those up automatically so you charge all your customers more money. Perfect. Yeah, I think it's a myth a miss to say that the myth is that you have to take advantage of microservices to use the cloud. Um, it'd be better you know, said by if you don't do take advantage of microservices, you're just going to pay through the nose because your elasticity only goes in one direction. And so mm -hmm. like, you know, having... In, you know, like having nodes just sitting there idle in a cloud work space just isn't cost efficient compared to running your own, you know, if you have any sort of infrastructure and have any sort of buying power, you know, like, you know, sure, you got to be of a certain size, but it just doesn't make sense to run compute at that level. I mean, even the example I give in the post is very telling of, of the kind of customers they're, they're trying to attract and, and uh, deal with. With services like this, I mean, if you only need eighty cores, I mean, I, I can't think of a, a a single machine I've deployed that had more than sixteen cores in the past ten years. 
Yeah. We just we just don't build things that need AC cores anymore. Makes makes no sense. Yeah. No. I, lots of little machines. Cattle, not pets. Yeah. So yeah, the, the thing is, Oracle makes exadata, which requires it's big iron. So they want you to not need to do that. <laughs> so they want you mm-hmm. they want you to pay them a lot of money for the big iron, so they can make a lot of money on the big iron stuff they built. So they don't want you to scale out, my friend. <laughs> no, that is true. I mean, and yeah, it's just it's you can see how it's core to their culture and core to their product. Yeah. For that, I mean, Oracle's not known for scale out other than Oracle Rack. And that scale out is limited to four nodes. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's not really like a massive scale out story there either. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're missing Peter this week. So uh, we are just going to round Robin through the lightning round once again. And Ryan, I put your name first. Woohoo. So you'll let you read that one. All right. Starting off, AWS Backup Audit Manager adds new controls to help prove compliance of maintaining immutable backups across AWS regions and accounts. Yeah. These auditors, man. First, you want me to tell you they're immutable. Now you want me to prove they're immutable with compliance. And next thing you want me is you want me to prove sovereignty and that they can't leave a region. Like, just too many things. You want compliance people. Just believe me, okay? (laughs) I I wonder if the control is just a green checkbox that says, yay. (laughs) It's immutable and it's there. We prove it. (laughs) Check the box. Amazon RDS for Postgres. Now supports TDS FTW extension for SQL Server databases. It's interesting they waited a week on this one because last week they announced it for MySQL, meaning that SQL Server was clearly second fiddle to MySQL. I just read all these extensions as TLDR. Like I, I don't, I'm not into the weeds with with databases, so it's like I have no idea what any of this is. Amazon RDS supports itemized billing for RDS storage, IOPS, and backup features. <laughs> So you can see exactly how much money you're spending in granular detail. Nice. Well, it makes each of the numbers look a little smaller, so it probably works in somebody's favor. Yeah. <laughs> it rolls up to a big number, but the numbers that are in the big number are small by yeah. comparison. And then they get the best way, like, oh, well, it's it's clearly your IOPS because you turned on PIOPS. So at least yeah. you'll be able to see that much easier now. And 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 then you can you know point to the, the DBA who says you have to have the PIOPS enabled or database don't work. Mm-hmm. Which is the only possible way to make a database work is with PyOps. You know that. It's right? true. I've heard that mm-hmm. from multiple DBAs. Yep. And finishing it off, Amazon Chime SDK now supports sessions with up to 10,000 live participants. However, I will not be attending that. That sounds terrible. I, uh, you know, I, I could join, I sign up for these webinars all the time. I'm like, ooh, that sounds interesting. And then I never attend. But I can tell you, if you're, my sign up form was a Chime, interface to sign up for the webinar, I would definitely wouldn't attend. <laughs> and if they actually can find someone who, if you can find 10,000 people to go to a webinar, clearly it's for gaming reasons only. Yeah. Live streaming through Chime. It's been really frustrating, actually, being um, being invited to webinars with a limit of 250 people. Like, you know, they have the AWS community builders um, coming in every six months now, I think. And they, they have uh, a couple of different sessions and they make the assumption that of all the people, they'll be split between three sessions fairly evenly. And but no, people people get rejected from being able to join the sessions. And what what bad PR that that uh, you know with the biggest cloud provider in the world, who operates at the biggest scale, can't even organise a, a a conference call to um, to meet their needs. So finally, well, I mean, is it really a sales pitch that you're trying to sell Chime to a bunch of uh, Amazon fanboys? Like they all know Chime sucks. <laughs> Because <laughs> I have this problem right now too with my Google reps. I'm like, oh, you guys want to use Google Meets? Oh, 
Yeah. But clearly, Chime and Meats, that's the same camp. <laughs> so it's yeah. just, it's all bad. Uh, and then, you know, your Microsoft people you're using with Teams, which uh, I'm now in a Teams company and I have all kinds of thoughts about Teams. Uh, mm-hmm. But I can basically summarize it down to it's fine for a one to one chat, it's fine for video conferencing, and it's a terrible Slack copycat. And they only had one job, which was to copy Slack. So I don't right. know how they screwed that part up because that's the one part yeah. they could actually copy. I was convinced that Slack was going to get, you know, their lunch eaten by because, you know, it's a good product and they did a great job, but they charge an arm and a leg for it. And so, you know, it's just expensive. And so Microsoft can use their huge behemoth power and throw teams at people for free. But turns out it's not a good enough product to fully replace it. Mm-hmm. Indeed. All right. Well, things coming up in the cloud world. We have Google Cloud Summits coming up April 6th, the Data Cloud Summit. Uh, they've also announced the Google Workspace Summit for all of you Google Apps folks because they renamed Google Apps to Google Workspaces, which is just as confusing as the prior name. No one knows what it is. <laughs> Why they just call it Google Email for Enterprise, I don't know. Uh, but anyways, that's where we're at. Uh, AWS Summit season has begun. April 12th, a couple weeks away, is the first one in Paris. Uh, and then April 20th through 21st, in person, in San Francisco, you can go to the AWS Summit for free. Uh, and then May 4th through 5th in Madrid, and May 11th through 12th in Berlin. Uh, and then Tel Aviv is May 18th in Israel. And then May 23rd through the 25th, you can do the federal government version of the summit in Washington, D.C. So that's always nice. Uh, if you want to register for the AWS Summit in San Francisco, you can go sign up for that right now. Uh, I will not be attending a summit. As I learned, the last three summits I've been to, I'm summits are too, too, too basic for me at this point. Uh, you know, if I were to tell you about a conference that was on this calendar that you guys were not excited about, which one would you have picked? That I was not excited about? Yes. Oh, it's got to be the IBM conference, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. I think All it's right. the IBM conference. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is coming up. <laughs> May, that, that is the May 9th through 13th. But the one that you were really less excited about was AWS Reinforce in Houston in June because it was going to be hot and it was going to be sticky because it's humid there. I didn't even, yeah, think about it. I, was, I don't even, yeah. I wasn't going to Texas. Screw that. Yeah. Well, you don't have to go to Texas now because Amazon has silently moved it back to Boston. Uh, due to the political issues in Texas, they decided they could not <laughs> host a conference in Texas. Uh, and so they have silently moved it to Boston. So if you had bought your tickets already to go to Houston, because you have, for some reason, uh, you now have to move those flights to Boston and your and your hotel rooms. Uh, so that, uh, that change happened uh, just silently overnight last week, uh, which I thought was sort of funny because they didn't even talk about it. And then they also announced uh, Amazon Remars is back in Las Vegas, June 21st through 24th for all your robotic uh, fun that you'd like to have. So there are some events coming up. Still invite only? or Because uh, it was quite restricted before, wasn't it? Uh, I thought the last time they did it, uh, in 20, 2019, I thought they actually had it open because you could buy a pass. Yes, yeah, so I can open, I can buy a pass for $1,500. I, too, can go to Mars if I want. Machine learning, automation, robotics, and space, which I don't care about, and I won't pay $1,500. No, it's if you for. care about those things, you may as well be from Mars. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so if you want to go to Remars, that's uh, available to you for fifteen hundred dollars, June twenty first through twenty fourth. Um, which you know, I, it looks like a conference every time they show photos of it and what they do. It looks fun, but it's just it's so niche for me that I would never, never take the time to go do it, unless I was in robotics or space. I guess. I mean, I'd love to be. That's. I mean, I make jokes, but I'm superly. I'm very, very jealous. I would love to go to this conference and nerd out and play play around with robotics and technology like, yeah. be fun well maybe we maybe we can get a sponsor to sponsor you there to go 
you can, awesome. you can report back. Yeah. All right. Well, that is it for another fantastic week in the cloud. We will see you next week. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Thank you.